Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. Reading through the passage this week, it, it, uh, and you'll see why, but it made me think about the things that I'm willing to argue about. So, you know, a lot of us are pretty laid-back folks. I'm a pretty laid-back guy. But every now and then there'll be something where I will be willing to press in and argue about that particular thing, and I'm sure you're, you're the same way. So you might be good at letting certain battles go by. And being wise about that, picking your battles, not dying on certain hills. But the question is, what battles will you pick? Like, when will you press in and push back and argue? What hills are you willing to die on? So Jude, our oldest son, and and Nora's a little bit sick, so they're not here this morning. But um, our oldest son, his middle name is Benjamin, which comes from, uh, uh, he's named after a theologian that was at Princeton Seminary, the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, this guy named B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge, Warfield, Jude, Benjamin, Daniel. Um, listen to what Warfield writes about sort of when to, to know, when to argue. He says, the chief dangers to Christianity do not come from the anti-Christian systems, No, it's corrupt forms of Christianity itself, which menace from time to time the life of Christianity. Why make much of minor points of difference between those who serve the one Christ? So he's saying, why argue about particularities inside the church, inside of of Christianity? Why make much of minor points of difference between those who serve the one Christ? Because a pure gospel is worth preserving. That's what Warfield says, and of course he's getting that from, from Scripture. A pure gospel is worth preserving. So he's saying we need to work for, we need to defend, we need to preserve the pure gospel. And as we move through Acts 15, we're, we're going to be taught five main truths that all center around this idea of a pure gospel. And you'll see this again on the outline. So first, the pure gospel is worth arguing about. That's the first thing we'll see. Second, the pure gospel is made clear in the Bible. Praise the Lord. Third, the pure gospel what it is, the content, the pure gospel is that salvation comes through faith alone in Christ alone. So right now you can kind of hang your head on that. That's what the pure gospel is. We'll get there and talk about that more in detail, but that's what we're talking about when we talk about the pure gospel. Fourth, the pure gospel produces holiness and charity. And then fifth, we should rejoice because of this pure gospel. Well, right off the bat, this entire passage only makes sense if we believe the first point, which is that a pure gospel is worth arguing about. So, so Acts chapter 15, it's a complete waste of time if arguing about the gospel is a waste of time. So you'll see all the effort they go to in this chapter from the beginning to the end. It's a lot of effort, but it's because the gospel, a pure gospel in particular, is worth arguing about. It's exactly how our, our passage begins. Verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Okay, so there's a situation where some teachers from Judea, the the area around Jerusalem, they come down to Antioch, which is where this new church is, these new Christians, and they're teaching these Christians that Old Testament circumcision is necessary for these new Christians to really be saved. They need to be circumcised in that way. They need to keep the Old Testament law more generally. And, and the reason that somebody would have thought this is, is pretty clear, right? So they weren't crazy. They, they weren't stupid. No, there's a place where these teachers were getting this idea. And it's because in the Old Testament, this was a command. Israel, God's people, had been given this command that for somebody to become part of God's people, 
They had to become an Israelite. So there was no salvation that was outside of Israel, not, not in the Old Testament. So this is Exodus chapter 12, verse 48, about becoming circumcised, keeping the Mosaic law. Exodus 12, 48. If a stranger shall sojourn with you, shall come alongside, be part of you. And if he would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. So these teachers, they knew this command from, from the old covenant. So they're telling people, no, it, it must be the same. You have to uphold the Mosaic law. You have to become an Israelite in order to be saved, to be part of God's children, to, to have your sins forgiven. So it was trust in Christ, sure, but it was trust in Christ plus these other things, these particular obediences. Well, look at how Paul and Barnabas respond. Verse two, they had no small dissension and debate with them. So, so there's dissension and there is debate because of this question. Now that word dissension, that's not just talking about friendly dialogue, right? Where, where you're kind of going back and forth, but, but it's, it's all in fun and not really much is, is riding on it. No, in fact, in the book of Acts, that Greek word dissension is oftentimes translated as riot. So when there's riots in the book of Acts where the people are ready to stone Paul and Barnabas or there's an uprising in the city, that's that word here for dissension. Same word, right? So that's the kind of tense interchange that's happening here. Paul and Barnabas, they aren't throwing literal punches, but it's not a friendly laid back debate either. It was a debate marked by dissension and not small dissension, we're told. Big dissension. So, so why is that? Why are Paul and Barnabas involved in this heated debate with these teachers from Judea? Well, again, it's because a pure gospel is worth arguing about. A pure gospel is worth arguing about. Why? Well, it's because the gospel is the news about how somebody has their sins forgiven, how, how they become God's child, how they're made right with God. But see, if that news is tampered with, if the gospel is tampered with, if it's changed enough then it's no longer the real gospel. It no longer saves. So that's why this is so significant. If the gospel's tampered with enough, if it's changed enough, it no longer saves. That's why in Galatians 1, Paul can say some people are turning to a different gospel because it's been distorted, is the way Paul says in Galatians 1. So if it's distorted enough, it becomes another gospel entirely, one that doesn't save. So, so yeah, getting the gospel right, it's the most important business in the universe. So just think about, think about a factory that produces a medicine. So let's say there's a disease, it kills people, there's one medicine that they come up with that can save people. And let's say that on the assembly line that some of the workers there, they've gotten in the habit of taking out some necessary elements of the drug or maybe adding something to it. But the net effect, whatever it is they're doing to fiddle with the drug – it, it makes that drug ineffective. Okay, well, would we take that seriously? Yes, right? That's a huge deal. We would take that seriously. Well, the only difference between an ineffective drug and an ineffective gospel is one of those can only hurt somebody during this life, and the other one can hurt somebody for eternity. So that's the kind of thing that we should use to position our displeasure our anger, the dissension that it will bring up when a false gospel is preached. So, so with all that in mind, think about what you typically argue about. So, so what is it that gets you really riled up? 
you can even think about this past week. What is it that, that got you animated, that got you arguing with people? When will you raise your voice? When would you consider separating from a group of people because, because there's some disagreement? What gets you heated? So is it politics? Is that the thing that usually does it? Or medical issues, vaccine mandates, those sorts of things. Eschatology, some other point of doctrine, social issues. You know, d- depending on what the issue is, all, all those things can be legitimate times, right? To, to get worked up, certainly. But only if an impure gospel gets you more worked up. It can be okay to get worked up about those things, but an impure gospel should get you more worked up. It should be ratcheted up. It should be a few clicks past that. So when someone, when someone is teaching a false gospel, does that get you angrier than when traffic is bad, right? Do, do you get angrier with a false gospel than you do when the restaurant gets rid of your favorite dish? Now, these are all silly things, but those are things that make us mad, right? So does, does a false gospel get you angrier than that? Or when your chosen candidate loses, Don't forget it. It was only when Israel had perverted the gospel so much that they were hindering the Gentiles from being connected to God. That's when Jesus tips the tables over and is chasing people with whips. That when you look at that picture, it's very different from what we see in the rest of his ministry, right? It is. Why? Because it was a false gospel. That's the thing that made him mad. It was only when in the Galatian church, there were these, these false teachers that were teaching that it was faith plus works that saved somebody. That's when Paul says, I wish those false teachers would mutilate themselves, is the term he uses there. That, that's what gets the Lord upset, is a false gospel. And that's why the teachers in our passage are upset. That's why Paul and Barnabas are upset with this false gospel, so they have no small dissension with them. A pure gospel is worth arguing about. But, but that's just the first lesson we learn here. Our second point is that the pure gospel is made clear in the Bible. Pure gospel is made clear in the Bible. So there's this disagreement about what the, what the gospel is. These teachers from Judea, they're saying, no, the good news, the way to be saved, faith in Christ plus becoming an Israelite, basically. Faith in Christ plus circumcision and keeping the Old Testament law. And Paul and Barnabas are saying, no, that's, that's not the gospel. So there's this argument about the gospel. So what does the church in Antioch do? They have these two different voices. What do they do? Middle of verse 2. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Well, well, right off the bat, we see the church in Antioch. This instinct's a good one, right? So the, the church, they're not sure how to answer this important question, so they reach out to the leadership of another church. That's just a good principle. That's a good thing to do. So they send this delegation to the church in Jerusalem, which had been a church longer than, than any other. And again, this is a good practice, and praise the Lord, our elders get to take advantage of this practice often. So regularly, the elders of this church are with a particular situation, don't know the best way to respond, don't know the best way to proceed. So we reach out to other churches that are solid churches, that are like-minded theologically, that maybe are a little bit further along than our church. And so we reach out and we ask, what would you do? How do you handle this particular situation? So praise God for that. And, and it's interesting here, right? The, the Antioch church, they're looking for wisdom from another local church. So they don't just go out and they're just sort of scouring the Christian landscape generally. No, they go to a church. We know that because they're going to the elders and the apostles, a local church structure in Jerusalem. That's where they're going. And that's because in the New Testament, that's where trustworthy Christian teaching came from. 
It came from inside the context of a local church under biblical leadership. So, so the Antioch church, they send this delegation, including Paul and Barnabas, up to the Jerusalem church. But there's something else more significant going on than one church simply asking advice from, from another church. This assembly in Jerusalem to talk about this question. So it, it took place probably around 50 AD. Well, well, we have to remember that at this point, a few of the New Testament letters were probably written, maybe one or two, but that was it. And they weren't distributed, certainly not widely. So the vast majority of folks didn't have access to any New Testament scriptures. It just wasn't there yet. So, so there's no New Testament for the Antioch church to pick up and leaf through to answer this particular question. But they do have access to the New Testament authors, which is what they do. That's the group they're going to in our passage. So they're going up to the group in Jerusalem that includes Peter and James and John, all three apostles who, who Jesus promised to work through in a unique way to, to produce scripture. So later on in our passage, when this group has produced a decision and they write it up and they distribute it to churches about what the gospel is, how it affects circumcision, those sorts of things, look at how they frame the letter. Verse 28, they say, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And then they go on and give the content. See, that's how inspiration of Scripture works. The Holy Spirit works in these men in a unique way to produce God's Word. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 talks about how they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a miraculous, mysterious thing. But the point is the Holy Spirit works in these guys in a way where they write exactly what they think they should write, and yet the Holy Spirit produces exactly what God wants written. That's why scripture is God's word, because the Spirit produces his word exactly like he wants it. So, so the author is writing exactly what he thinks he should write, but also what the Holy Spirit is leading him to write. That, that's the group that the church in Antioch is seeking wisdom from. And when you include Paul with these guys, because he's one of the guys that's going up there, he's an apostle as well. When you include Paul with James and Peter and John, You've got the authors of 20 out of 27 New Testament books that are sitting there in that council at Jerusalem, in that church. So, so when these Antioch Christians send a group to travel to Jerusalem, I think the most direct application for us is to travel into our Bibles. That's basically what they're doing. They're going to the authors of Scripture. We should do the same thing. We should go to the authors of Scripture. Go to the book. Go to the Bible. And the reason is that's where the gospel is found. The pure gospel is made clear in the Bible. And, and why wouldn't it be, right? By God's own estimation, the gospel is of first importance. That's what the Lord says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. And so since God considers the gospel to be of first importance, you find it written about clearly from the beginning, from Genesis, all the way to Revelation. So we see it in the opening pages when God clothes Adam and Eve with garments from an animal that died so they didn't have to. And they're clothed with the sacrifice of that animal. You see it in, in the promise to Adam and Eve that one of their descendants will come one day to finally and fully crush the head of the serpent. That's Christ. It's a promise about the gospel all the way back in Genesis 3. You see it in the closing pages of the book of Revelation where the lamb that was slain on our behalf promises his return to come and usher the kingdom in. And it's in every book in between. The pure gospel is made clear in the Bible. So the question for you is, are you going to the Bible to look for the gospel? Are you going to the Bible for this pure gospel? And if not, why? 
So, so you might, you might just not think the gospel of Jesus is that important. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or don't know what you think about Christ, there's a good chance that you fall into this category. But just remember that the gospel of Jesus is the only way for you to avoid the wrath of God. It's the only way for you to be connected to God and have your sins forgiven. Christ is, is the only way. Because like we talked about with the Lord's Supper, he's the only one that can drink the wrath of God. That's what he did on the cross. And that's the only reason that, that we don't have to. There's no other way to get to God to have your sins forgiven aside from placing your full hope and confidence in Christ alone as your Savior. But if you're, you're a believer, then you know how important the gospel is. So why are there times when we as believers aren't going to the Bible for this pure gospel? Well, it's probably the times where we think we understand the gospel well enough, right? So we just think, no, I know this. This, this ground is well-tread. I've got the gospel. I can move on. I can think about other things, right? But what we want to understand is you'll never move past your need for the gospel, number one, and you'll never grow past your need to hear the gospel. That's just a true thing, what I just said. It's just true. You'll never move past your need for the gospel. You'll never move past your need to hear the gospel. So for the Christian, hearing and reading the gospel, it's like oxygen. You can't store up enough oxygen as a human and then be like, all right, I'm all set. No more oxygen. No, you need oxygen. Well, as Christians, we need to hear the gospel. We need that. That's why when Paul's writing to a group of Christians in chapter or Romans chapter 1, verse 15, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. Now, they had already believed the gospel. They're already Christians, and yet that's what Paul wants to do because he knows Christians need to always be hearing the gospel. As one commentator says it, we never move on from the cross only into a more profound understanding of the cross. So, so you need the gospel as much today as you did the first day you believed it. So go to the Bible to find it. The pure gospel is made clear in the Bible. And so now what's the Bible's answer about what the pure gospel is? Well, that's our third point. The pure gospel is that salvation comes through faith alone in Christ alone. That's the pure gospel. So the Antioch church, they send this group up to, to the holy inspired authors of scripture there in Jerusalem to see what the pure gospel is. So what does the Bible teach about salvation? That's the question. Once again, we see one option, verse five. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So that's one answer to the question. Salvation comes through somebody trusting in Christ and keeping the law, doing these good things, right? Especially the, the Abrahamic covenant's initial command of, of being circumcised. And this is really representative of, of every man-made religion in the world. Every religion apart from Christianity, some, some versions may have faith in Christ as part of the answer, and that's where you have to be discerning as a Christian because they do. You'll go to some churches, some big church traditions, and if you look at their documents about what is the gospel, how is somebody made right with God, faith in Christ will be there. You'll see it. So that's not, you can't check it off at that point. Okay, they got it. They got the gospel. No, you have to look for what comes after that. Is it faith in Christ alone or what oftentimes happens, are they saying it's faith in Christ plus this other thing, these certain ceremonies, these certain rituals, these certain good works, right? No, the Bible's clear to be justified in God's eyes, to become innocent of your sins. All you need is faith alone in Christ alone. So Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're here in the Jerusalem church with these leaders to answer this question. That's the way they answer it, but let's see the, the way that they say it. What is the pure gospel? Look at verse 7. And after there had been much debate, 
Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So, so here's the pure gospel. Salvation comes through faith alone in Christ alone. That's what the apostles are making clear here. And we need both of those alones. That's what we've been talking about. We need both of those alones. So other parts and actually focus on the in Christ alone part. So he's the only savior. He's the only way to get to the father. Acts chapter four, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So it's Christ alone. But again, there's this other significant alone, and that's concerning how you get connected to Christ. And that comes through faith alone, apart from works. And the apostles build the case for this with four main points of evidence. And this is on the outline. So they build this case. It's faith alone in Christ alone. How do we know that? They give four pieces of evidence, at least broadly. The first piece of evidence they give in what we just read, the reason the apostles see the pure gospel as salvation through faith alone in Christ alone, is that God has gone out to the Gentiles. It's the first thing they point out. God has gone out to the Gentiles. So remember, in the Old Testament, Judaism was a come and see religion. So people were sort of invited to come, but they had to be part of Israel if they wanted to be saved. And certainly Israel wasn't going out. No, people could become part of God's people, but, but they had to become Israelites. But look at what has changed after Jesus. Verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believed. So part of God's plan was after Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended to be with the Father, certain apostles would be sent out to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to non-Jews. So, so it makes sense that salvation wouldn't be contingent on being circumcised and, and obeying the Old Testament law under the old covenant. The gospel wasn't only saving people who became Jews. It was saving people outside of Israel. And that's because God is too glorious to only have one kind of people. He's too glorious to only have one kind of people. Look at what verse 14 says. Simeon, there he's talking about Simon Peter. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So God goes out to, to get people, not just Jews, but non-Jews to glorify his name. And that had always been part of his plan. It had always been part of the plan to save non-Jews through the gospel of Christ. Verse 14, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. 
just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. This is a passage Gabe read earlier from the Old Testament prophet Amos. So God's plan had always been for the gospel to go out of Israel and to save Gentiles, to save non-Jews, and not by them first becoming Jews, but to save them as Gentiles. In other words, not, not to save them by obeying the law, but, but to save them and forgive their sins through faith alone in Christ alone, apart from any works. So that's the first piece of evidence he gives. Second piece of evidence the apostles give. God has given the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. He's given the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. So, so these Gentiles that we see converted in Acts up to this point, they haven't been circumcised. They're not obeying the law of Moses. They're still living as Gentiles, and yet the apostles have told them, you're Christians, you've been saved. And yet, God had given them the Holy Spirit. He had given them the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And they point out in verse 12, the reason they know they received the Holy Spirit is because of these miraculous signs that are happening. People speaking languages they had never known before, particular miracles happening, right? Things that can't be counterfeit, things that are clear fruit of the Lord doing miraculous works and showing these people really have the Holy Spirit. But, but see, what, what shows that the Gentiles have been saved apart from works of the law is because God only gives the Holy Spirit to people that are saved. God only gives the Holy Spirit to Christians. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. God has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So the spirit is someone's guarantee that he or she belongs to God. That's the guarantee. But, but how did these Gentiles get the Holy Spirit? It's like Paul asks in Galatians 3, verse 2, he says, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? That's the same thing Paul and Barnabas and Peter are saying here. They're saying, hey, these Gentiles, we know they're saved because they have the Holy Spirit, but they got the Holy Spirit not by being circumcised and obeying the law. They got the spirit by faith alone in Christ alone. So that's the second piece of evidence. They've been given the Holy Spirit. Third piece of evidence the apostles give. The Jewish fathers even weren't able to bear the yoke of the law. They weren't able to bear the yoke of the law either. These commands that are being given to the Gentiles, yeah, submit to the law of Moses, obey these things. Well, even, even the, the Jewish fathers hadn't been able to do that. Peter makes this point, verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God at the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So a yoke, you probably know this, it's that contraption that sits on top of two animals, right? Cows, bulls, whatever it was where they're pulling a cart or pulling a plow, and that yoke is on top of them so they can pull that particular thing. Well, in verse 10, Peter's reminding everyone that the law of Moses, the, the law of the old covenant was like a heavy yoke that nobody could pull. That's the point he's making here. It's the same thing Paul preached back in Acts chapter 13, verse 38. And there he said, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Okay, so in what way is the law of Moses like a heavy yoke that can't free us from sin? Well, it's because the law of Moses was only effective for people if they could actually fulfill the law. 
The law only did that good work. It only saved somebody if they could fulfill the law perfectly. Romans chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So the law only provides life if you can fulfill it perfectly. That's the thing about the law. But, but see, because of our sinful nature, we can't fulfill the law perfectly. We can't do these things perfectly. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or, or you don't know what you think about Jesus, I wonder if you've realized this. Even though you might like to love God and you might like to love other people, you don't do it perfectly, do you? You fall short. Just like everybody in this room, right? We're, we're all sinners, well, if you're trying to be good enough to end up righteous in God's eyes, you, you have to be actually righteous. You have to actually obey the law perfectly. There, there are certain arrangements that my family needs to make for North Carolina before the move, but lots of them you can't make until you're actually in that state. That's the way it works, right? If you've ever moved, then you know when you end up somewhere, there's certain things that you can't do until you have a home address. You have to establish residency there. Well, to be justified in God's eyes, you have to live in the state of righteousness, right? You can't be passing through every now and then. Yeah, sometimes I'm righteous, sometimes I'm... No, you have to live there. Your residency has to be established in the state of righteousness. If if you want to get life by the law, you have to be a permanent resident there. But none of us can do that. And see, part of the law's design was to show us just that. The law shows us we can't fulfill it perfectly. I'll read you two passages. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in to increase the trespass, to increase sin. Romans chapter 7, verse 13. The law came in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond all measure. I remember rollerblading down our hill in front of my parents' house when I was little. It's probably in the fifth grade. And I was probably going faster than I should. And the rollerblades came together. And I flew through the air and luckily landed on my face and just slid. And, uh, and I remember laying there at the bottom of the hill with like a bloody face. And there was another kid in the neighborhood. He watched it all happen, which is always great, right? Because that's how it goes. Somebody, there's always there, somebody's there to see it. So he's sitting there and my face is bleeding. And, uh, and he didn't go get a grown up. He didn't say like, hey, can I help you up? What he said was, your face is bleeding. <laughs> that, that was the thing that he said to me which wasn't necessary. I, I knew that my face was bleeding, right? But, but see, that's, that's all that the law can do. The, the law, when you're laying there on the ground in your sin, the law can't help you up. It can't go get help. All the law can do is say, your face is bleeding. <laughs> Just to tell you the thing that you already know, you're broken, you're helpless, you're hopeless. The law can't do anything other than that. And, and that's what the law did with Abraham and Moses and David Every one of God's other people all throughout the history of Israel. That's what the law does. In fact, Peter says expecting the law to save somebody. Here he says that's putting God to the test. The law just isn't designed to do that. And God knows we aren't good enough to fulfill the law's commands in that way. Not enough to be justified in God's eyes. No, the only way to be justified isn't through moral effort. It's through trusting in the one who is morally perfect on our behalf. Is to be justified, to become innocent of our sins through our faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you're here and you're not currently doing that, you're not a Christian, you're not trusting in Christ alone to cover your sins, talk to me about that afterwards if you're willing to do that. Talk to another member of this church to hear more about the gospel of Christ. 
But the only way to be justified is to place faith alone in Christ alone. Good works can't do it for you. Okay, fourth piece of evidence the apostles give. If works are required for salvation, then God isn't gracious. One of those things has to be true to the falsity of the other. So he can either be gracious or works can be required for salvation. But of course, we know God is supremely gracious. Look at verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So Peter says, the reason we know people are saved by faith apart from works is because that's the only way that God is gracious. And of course, we know that God is gracious and, and it makes complete sense. What's the Bible mean when it talks about grace? Grace is just a gift. That's what grace means in the Bible. Grace is a gift. So Romans chapter four, verses one through 10 are all about. Romans chapter four, verse four. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So if you have to work for your salvation, that means it's not a gift. No, it's just something that God would owe you. It's not, it's not really gracious, but see, God is gracious. He's not like a parent who only gives their kids their birthday presents and their Christmas presents the years that the kids are particularly good, right? If you meet these requirements, kids, then you will get these presents. No, kids give their kids, uh, parents give their kids presents as gifts, not as wages they've earned. And that's what makes it a gift. Well, God is gracious. And, and Paul gives circumcision as an example of this in Romans 4 when it comes to Abraham in the Old Testament in particular. You might remember, but in Genesis 17, God gives Abraham the command to be circumcised. But, but is that command to be circumcised, is that, is that what makes him innocent in God's eyes? So he, he had his sins on him, he was guilty, and then he gets circumcised and then the slate's wiped clean. Is that how it works? No. No, the slate was wiped clean two chapters earlier in our call to worship this morning from Genesis 15, two chapters before circumcision. In fact, it'd probably be encouraging this afternoon to read Genesis 15 and 17 and to see, oh, justification comes before this particular obedience. And see, God has always saved his people this way. He's always saved his people by faith apart from works. And he's always saved his people this way because God has always been gracious. So because we know God's gracious, we know salvation through faith alone apart from works, which is exactly what Peter says in verse nine. He kind of sums it up. And God makes no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. That's how sins get wiped away. That's how we become innocent. That's how we become justified in God's eyes through faith alone in Christ alone, apart from any works. The Gentiles didn't have to become Jews in order to be saved. They didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to obey any other part of the Mosaic law. They were saved merely by trust alone in Christ alone. And that's the pure gospel. So, so this is the conclusion that, that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this group of apostles come to. They put the conclusion, they put it down in a letter to be sent back to these Gentile churches so they understand this pure gospel. So it's made more clear for them. Look at the point of this letter in verse 28, the point for these new Gentile believers. He says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Okay, so he's, he's made it clear they don't need to be circumcised because salvation comes through faith alone, not by good works. However, it is instructive that the apostles don't just say, all you need to know is how you were justified. Now just do whatever you want. No, that's not what the gospel says. The gospel doesn't work itself out. That's antinomian. That's, that's not somebody who's been recreated in the gospel. 
that's really believed the gospel. No, they give them some more instructions here. And, and in particular, they give, the, they give these new believers three things to stay away from. And this gets at our fourth, fourth point from Acts 15. The pure gospel produces holiness and charity. The pure gospel produces holiness and charity. So even though it doesn't affect their justification, these new Gentile believers are told to stay away from a few different things. So first, the apostle tells them, abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled. So why do they give these instructions about what not to eat? Well, it's because if you look in the history of Acts, what happens is you've got the Jews who are trusting in Christ, and then you have these Gentile believers brought in. And there's some struggle here because they have difficulty fellowshipping together because these Jews continue to uphold the Old Testament law, which is well within their rights, by the way. That's not sinful. So for a Jew to say, okay, I'm I'm trusting in Christ, but... I'm still not going to go anywhere near meat that's offered to idols, or I'm not going to eat shellfish, or, or, or I'm not going to eat some other thing that the law says not to eat. That's not a sin. They're well within their right as a Christian to do that. But that would interfere with fellowship between Jew and Gentile. Because if, if the Gentiles are participating in all of these things that the Jews still think, no, we shouldn't do this, it's going to interfere with what they can do together. And so the apostles are giving this instruction about, hey, as Gentiles, lay down some of your rights here. Forgo some of these things that you know your brothers and sisters in Christ, your Israelite brothers and sisters, they won't be good with this thing. It'll interfere with their conscience. So go without that thing so you can fellowship with these other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what he talks about in verse 29. He says, what has been sacrificed to idols? You might remember this. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 8 that that there is a venue in which it's okay to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols in the temple, because what would happen is they'd sacrifice this meat to idols, and then they would sell it for really cheap, because it had kind of already be, be, been used, so people could get it at a discount. And Paul says, yeah, that can be an okay thing to do. That's not inherently sinful, to eat this meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. But he also gives this category of, but out of love for your fellow Jews who don't think they should eat it, be careful about the context in which you eat that meat. You don't want that to separate your fellowship from other brothers and sisters in Christ. So, so you can see it, it would affect their ability to, to be together. And the good news is that, in part, Jew and Gentile have been brought together. That's, that's one implication of, of the gospel. So the pure gospel, it produces people who, who are willing to give up their rights for the good of their fellow Christians. And so that's a good question for you. What about you? Is there anything you'd like to do? You know it's not inherently sinful, but you give up that thing, at least in some contexts, out of love for the body of Christ. To not, to not mess with fellowship between you and other believers or to not discourage them? Are, are you willing to give up your rights for the good of the unity in the body of Christ? Well, there, there's another category the apostles tell them to stay away from, but this one is inherently sinful. End of verse 29. Abstain from sexual immorality. But again, good news, the pure gospel doesn't only produce charity, it also produces holiness. It produces holiness. So, so while your justification in Christ came by faith alone, that, that faith is never alone, the way Martin Luther says it. No, it, he recreates us in the gospel, and he produces good works in our life by his power and, and for his glory. And one significant category of holiness that Christ produces is sexual holiness. Listen to this, this list of sins Paul gives in 2 Corinthians 6. He lists sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality. He lists other sins as well, but he mentions several kinds of sexual sins, but this is what he says. Then he says this of Christians, and such were some of you, but you were washed, 
you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the gospel, it doesn't only make you innocent in God's eyes of, of sexual sin. It also gives you the power moving forward to turn away from that sin, which is part of the power of the gospel. So the pure gospel produces holiness and charity. When we know that God's word is, is never given to us just so we understand something better. Some of us tend toward that way, right? We love to read, love to think about theology, and that just feels good. It's easy to do that and then walk away and think that we've done something good for the Lord. No, Scripture is always supposed to do a good work in our hearts and then produce fruit in our lives. That's what Scripture is always supposed to do. So what fruit is Acts 15 supposed to produce in us? What's the bottom line? What's the biggest thing it's supposed to produce? What's our final point this morning? Rejoice because of this pure gospel. Rejoice because of this pure gospel. Look at verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Listen, there's no better news in the universe than the news of the pure gospel that we're made right in God's eyes by faith alone, not according to our own works, not not because of our feeble efforts, but because of Christ, because of his perfect life and death and resurrection on our behalf. Listen to one way an author named Milton Vincent says it. He says, I never have to do a moment's labor to gain or maintain my justified status before God. Isn't that good? I never have to do a moment's labor to gain or maintain my justified status before God. As a Christian, you will never be more justified than you are right now. Isn't that incredible? You'll never be more justified than you are right now, and you will never be unjustified. Praise God. And that's because your justification depends in no way on your performance. It depends on Jesus' performance, which has been and and will remain perfect and lacking in nothing. There's no better news in all the universe. So rejoice because of the pure gospel. 